This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and policy insider Chris Condolucci. Hello, Health Plan Alliance members. Welcome to our April Policy Unpacked podcast. I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. Thank you for being with us this month. And also with me, of course, is Chris Condolucci, our go-to resource for all things Washington. Hi, Chris. It's great to be with you again. Yes, Mr. Dennis. How are you, sir? I hope you enjoyed your time away. We definitely missed you, but we know Nicole did a fantastic job in your stead. And I'm looking forward to uh, another podcast now that you're back. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. And again, thanks to Nicole. She did do a a great job last month. And thank you, as always, Chris. Well, it seems like spring has sprung, or at least here in Dallas, it has. We already hit 90 degrees the other day. Wow. I don't know if things have started to thaw in Washington, D.C. or not. And I guess I mean that both physically, (laughs) weather-wise, but metaphorically, political-wise. I don't know if there's any thaw in some of the issues that you've been tracking very closely for us. Certainly, COVID still is in the headlines, spiking up and down. And I think it was just this week that a COVID package did pass through Congress at $10 million. It was much less than I think the administration put forward. But it still is an indication that COVID is front and center there in Washington and across the country. So I know that the administration is taking a look at, okay, so where do we go from here from a policy perspective? And one of the headlines that I've seen coming out of news outlets is around the public health emergency, the PHE. And its extension, if I'm right, it's scheduled to expire in April. But do we expect it to be extended through some point in the summer? Can you help us understand what some of the implications around that are? Sure, sure. And it's been on everyone's mind of late as, you know, knock on wood, of course. COVID seems to be in the rearview mirror, although to your point, There's been a retreat and then a spike and then another spike. And now we're kind of in a good place, but you never know. But to your point, the public health emergency was announced back in 2020. And the public health emergency was tied to COVID. And the importance of this public health emergency is much of the health care spending, both on the public payer side of things, as well as on the private payer side of things through legislation that was enacted back in 2020 in response to COVID, the public health emergency kind of looms large because much of that spending is tied to the fact that that public health emergency is still in place. And the public health emergency has been extended. Honestly, I've lost count, to be honest with you, Dennis, since 2020, but it's been about seven times. And to your point, the current public health emergency will run through April 16th, and there is an expectation that the secretary of HHS will extend the public health emergency another 90 days, which should bring us to July. And then most are expecting that 
Provided everything goes according to plan, i.e. there's no spike between now and July, the public health emergency could even end in July. And so why are folks talking about the end of the public health emergency? Well, I just told you that there's a lot of things that are tied to the public health emergency. One very important coverage, health coverage issue or aspect of the public health emergency is Medicaid coverage. When Congress enacted the COVID stimulus packages back in 2020, Congress said, hey, states, you don't have to undergo an eligibility determination when it comes to Medicaid eligibility. In other words, to be eligible for Medicaid, you have to have a certain income level. And Congress said to states, you don't even have to look at someone's financial status or household income to determine whether they're eligible. Just put them on the Medicaid rolls, which many states did. And a lot of folks who were uninsured moved over to Medicaid. And we actually have the highest level of Medicaid enrollment ever. We're close to 80 million people. Now, much of that, about 16 million people, according to think tanks like the Urban Institute, could lose coverage based on redeterminations from an eligibility perspective once the public health emergency ends. So there's a lot of concern that, again, double-digit millions of people could lose coverage once the public health emergency ultimately ends in July. Now, last thing I'll say, Dennis, is the administration is trying to respond to this problem. So the administration actually announced that states will have an additional 12 months from the date the public health emergency ends to go through this redetermination process. Now, that's a good thing because it gives many of these Medicaid beneficiaries time to switch to different coverage. And another important aspect, which will close out my thoughts here, Dennis, is where will many of these Medicaid beneficiaries go? Well, there is an expectation that millions of them will be eligible for a private individual market exchange plan and their incomes will be higher than Medicaid. Thus, they're losing Medicaid eligibility, but their incomes will be low enough to qualify for an ACA premium subsidy. So you will have, the hope is, many of these millions of individuals coming off the Medicaid rolls, but simply shifting over into a subsidized exchange plan which is business for our Health Plan Alliance members, as well as a good social policy move because people will be maintaining coverage. Well, Chris, it sounds like both the stakes and the opportunities for our members are, are very high. So we'll continue to you know, monitor this, I would guess, through May and June and into July. So thanks for that recap. I wanted to keep up with this rite of spring metaphor that we have here. Another rite of spring is that the president's budget and the administration recently issued their first budget proposal. And I know it's kind of a game in Washington because you can't even really say that the budget is a starting position because 99% of the time, the president's budget doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't matter whether it has a D behind it or an R behind it or who controls Congress or who's in the White House. But it does give us an indication of the administration's 
policy priorities. So when you looked at the budget that was released, is there anything noteworthy that stood out for you that our members should be monitoring? Yeah, and to your point, Dennis, you know, president budgets really go nowhere in Congress, regardless of which political party holds the White House or Congress. It's more of aspirational communicating the administration's priorities from a spending perspective and to your point from a policy perspective. And oftentimes budgets do have some interesting policy priorities that are advanced through the budget. But this year, in truth, Dennis, there's not really much from a policy perspective, you know, but noteworthy stuff related to COVID. The the president requested $81 billion over the next five years to boost COVID response and future pandemic preparedness. You know, there's other things like $20 billion uh, for behavioral health efforts and to drive health equity initiatives. We know that social determinants of health is a significant issue for this administration and shares bipartisan support. So it's not surprising that, one, there's funding for mental health and social determinants of health um, issue areas. And just it's, again, an indication that is a policy priority for this administration. But generally speaking, that funding, you know, never really meets the funding threshold or goal that's set forth in the president's budget. And one perfect example, Dennis, you alluded to at the beginning of our podcast here, Congress did agree on a bipartisan COVID funding package, $10 billion. So $10 billion is a lot different than $81 billion. But needless to say, it's $10 billion of COVID preparedness, which is intended to, like the president's budget has suggested, increase funding for COVID preparedness and response, such as vaccines, production of drugs to treat the illness, as well as preparedness for future pandemics. And I guess the last thing I'll say, Dennis, on this subject of just kind of budgetary news, you know, Medicare Advantage revenues are expected to increase by 8.5% in 2023, due in part to a 4% plus increase in rates that were announced back in January of this year. You know, increased COVID spending and inflation contributes to that. So it's not necessarily a president's budget thing, but it is a budgetary aspect that we know our members here at HPA are interested in when it comes to MA. So just to kind of round out this budget discussion, There's other aspects to spending, and MA is part of that, but uh, not as much policy stuff coming from the president's budget to your original question. So, again, something else for us to continue to monitor what starts to take shape as the budget makes its way through Congress and all the negotiations that we know that surround it begin to take shape as well. So thanks for laying out for us kind of in broad strokes what we should be paying attention to. You know, it wouldn't be one of our podcasts, Chris, if we didn't come back around and talk about the federal surprise billing requirements. I think on the last podcast, you spoke about the court case in the Texas District Court ruling that had an impact on the surprise billing rules. And I, you mentioned that it doesn't do anything to stop the surprise billing protections or the payment process but it did have an impact on the rules that surround the arbitration process. Has that come any more into focus for us? Um, 
I'll give you the typical lawyer answer, Dennis. Yes and no. <laughs> so yes and no. It's come a little bit into focus, but it's still uh, there's a lot of question because we haven't received guidance from HHS yet. But to just take a step back to your original point about surprise billing. Yes, it's been a significant topic of discussion in our podcast and our briefs over the last year and this first quarter of this year. And it really is important to emphasize that the Texas ruling did nothing to interrupt the surprise billing protections for patients, as well as the surprise billing payment process that payers and providers must follow. So those processes, those rules will continue uninterrupted, notwithstanding the particular ruling. And I'd say when it comes to just trying to get some clarity to my answer yes to to your question, it's again important to understand, and folks are finally wrapping their head around this, which is the Texas ruling, to your point, Dennis, impacted the arbitration process, but it just impacted the arbitration process. And what type of impact did it have in the arbitration process? Well, the interim final rules that the government issued back in September of last year essentially handcuffed the arbiter in arbitration and said, hey, arbiter, you must assume that the qualifying payment amount, which as we've explained is the in-network median rate for a particular item or service furnished in a geographic region, So again, Arbiter, you must assume that this in-network median rate represents the final payment amount in arbitration. So again, it handcuffed the Arbiter to assume that in the only way, per the government rules, that the Arbiter can deviate from that assumption is if, for example, the provider comes with what's referred to as credible information that shows to the Arbiter that the qualifying payment amount, this in-network median rate, is just way off. Well, The Texas ruling simply took off those handcuffs and just simply said, hey, arbiters, we don't agree with the federal government here that you have to assume that the in-network rate is the final payment determination. Instead, you must just look at the qualifying payment about this in-network median rate as a factor among other factors to finally determine what a payment amount should be. So there is or has been, I should say, some confusion out there where folks are like, well, the qualifying payment amount is now gone. It is watered down. An arbiter is not going to even look to it. That's incorrect, Dennis. The arbiter is still allowed to look to the qualifying payment amount, i.e. this in-network median rate, weigh that against other evidence that, for example, a provider submits, and then the arbiter will make the decision. And the last point I'll make, Dennis, is from my perspective, This particular Texas ruling made the arbiters jobs that much more difficult. They already had a pretty difficult job of figuring out how to navigate the arbitration process and the new federal portal that was created by the federal government, as well as following the rules on what factors they they being the arbiters should take into account when it comes to making a final determination. Well, now the Texas ruling just muddied the waters of what the arbiters should do from a guideline perspective. And the, the arbiters are more or less treading water right now, trying to figure out what the best path forward is once the arbitration process begins and the federal portal goes live. Well, I, that's interesting, Chris, because in a sense, it creates opportunity for health plans 
in that it frees up the arbiter to look at additional factors. So everything isn't just black and white. But of course, the challenge with that is then that the health plan has to marshal its arguments and its data and its information to put forward to the arbiter who then can weigh all of those different factors. Does indeed. So, so yes, the payers are going to have to, in my opinion, include additional information in their offer submission brief that they might not have otherwise included in that brief to at least put on notice that the qualifying payment amount and the payer's opinion is indeed the most representative value. But again, the arbiter has to weigh all factors at this stage. We're waiting for future guidance to tell us whether that's going to change or future litigation that is also underway, whether additional court rulings will continue to muddy the waters. And let's say there might be a court ruling in the D.C. District Court, for example, that comes to a different conclusion than what the Texas District Court came to. So a lot of uncertainty. And as we've always said, Dennis, plans do not like uncertainty. Yeah, exactly, Chris. And to use a common phrase for all of us now, it's no surprise that this process is not as simple or black and white and as certain as we would like. But that's what we have to deal with, right? Sure. One last thing, I don't want you to get away without talking a little bit about the federal portal. You just mentioned it. And I understand you had a bet writing on over or under as to when the federal portal would open. Would it go live on April the 1st? Did you win your bet? Nope. Oh, no. I did not win my bet. Now, I will say I was cheering for Kansas in the NCAA tournament final game. So at least Kansas came on top. But uh, when it comes to the go live date for the federal portal, I was on the wrong end of that bet. And what we mean by that is, you know, so just giving some dates here, the federal government initially indicated that February 28th would be the go live date for the federal portal. Well, February 23rd was this Texas court ruling that we just discussed, which again, muddied the waters So it impacted that February 28th go-live date on actually February 28th. The federal departments issued guidance saying, hey, we uh, are going to issue guidance conforming to this Texas ruling. Once we issue that guidance, we're going to train all the stakeholders who will use the federal portal and then we'll have the federal portal go live. Well, I did expect that we would have seen guidance sometime in the month of March. We did not. And I did expect to see that guidance and thus have Federal Portal go live on April 1. Well, again, my over under, uh, I was on the wrong side of it. The Federal Portal is not yet live. And to even add to that, Dennis, we have yet to see guidance from the federal departments on how they are expecting stakeholders and the arbiters, what they're expecting them to do once the Federal Portal goes live. No guidance yet. I will say, though, Dennis, The federal government has identified what they are calling testers. I'll actually call them guinea pigs. And the federal government has invited these guinea pigs to these testers, to be more politically correct, to test the federal portal. And that testing actually has occurred. So at the end of March, there was three days in which these testers were actually asked to use the federal portal to fill out some of the web forms, 
to deal with some of the information flow that is transacted through the federal portal. And these testers went through that process. Now, the takeaways from that testing exercise or those three days of testing is that one, the federal portal's functionality is still pretty limited. There are still some bugs to be worked out when it comes to functionality. And most folks are now expecting that we won't see a functional go live federal portal until May 1st. And we could even see a federal portal pushed off until sometime in May and even June. And why are some expecting that? Well, the federal departments have indicated that they want to finalize all of the surprise billing rules in May through one big regulation that pulls together the July 1st rules from last year, the September 30th rules from last year, and all of the comments that they've received in between have one huge package of a reg that finalizes all the surprise billing rules. And again, they were projecting, or federal departments are projecting May. Well, with the Texas ruling and with the D.C. District Court that I mentioned still considering a particular similar challenge, we don't know if that May date is going to be met. And if the May date is not met, will the federal government just go forward and putting the federal portal and have it go live May 1st, mid-May? The providers certainly are banging on the federal department saying, hey, we have arbitration claims, these out-of-network claims piling up, and we want to get paid. And the federal departments are trying to be cognizant of that but they also want to get it right. And then lastly, we have this uncertainty with the litigation, and it really comes down to a mess because we don't have a federal portal. We have these questions relating to the arbitration process, and we sit and wait for final rules. So with that, Dennis, I think I'm going to go take a shot of whiskey uh, <laughs> to cry in my uh, my beer, if you will, because uh, we sadly don't have any certainty and we don't expect any certainty anytime soon. But just like always, we will keep monitoring and keep our HPA members up to speed with what's going on out there. Well, Chris, I have to chuckle a little bit along with you. I know it's very serious and I don't mean to make light of it. But in a way, it's the government getting a taste of its own medicine when they send out testers and secret shoppers to our members to test their websites and their call centers and the engagement that we have with consumers. So I have to, uh, like I say, chuckle just a little bit that the government is getting a taste of its own medicine on that, as serious as the implications are for our members. So thanks for giving us an update on that. And I'm sorry you lost your bet. But Chris, as always, it's been great to spend this time with you. Thank you for sharing your insights and your perspectives and really most importantly, helping us identify what are the issues that we need to really be paying attention to. I encourage our listeners to use the discussion forum on the Health Plan Alliance's website to submit their questions or their ideas for what they would like you to speak about next month on our podcast. So until then, Chris, take care and thank you for keeping us informed. Yes, and I uh, look forward to talking next month. 
Again, we're going to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on, notwithstanding the uncertainty. You know, there are some things that we can kind of, you know, cut through and either look around the corner and guesstimate on what's going to happen and or at least analyze, you know, the impacts on certain changes like the Texas court ruling and the type of impact uh, that might have. Because, again, there's been some confusion between when that ruling came out and the comments that we've made here and will continue to make going forward. So as always, Dennis, appreciate uh, hanging out with you and chatting for a bit and welcome back. And I look forward to next month. Well, thank you, Chris. And thank you to all of our listeners. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our Policy Brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming Policy Forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.